about the Roberts Court in general, as you know, it's now had 10 years of time. It's been a decade since uh, John Roberts became Chief Justice, and we certainly have ample evidence by this point that the Roberts Court is no stranger to judicial activism, however you define that term. I mean, examples from previous terms that you would be familiar with would include um, D.C. versus Heller, the uh, first, the Second Amendment, a right to bear arms case. Uh, Citizens United is a widely known case dealing with political expenditures by corporations. Uh, the Sibelius case, which though it upheld the uh, the Affordable Care Act, placed striking limits on the commerce power and also on the uh, uh, spending power. And then one other example, Shelby County, the case in which the court basically in the judgment of some people, eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Those were all, in, in political terms, conservative victories, but of course there have been liberal victories as well, including uh, fairly robust use of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment in things like child rape and uh, life sentences without possibility of parole. And of course we have United States versus Windsor two years ago, the case in which the court um, struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. So it's a, a court that uh, is willing to use its powers one way or the other, which brings us then to this term. I mean, what about the term that ended in the summer of 2015? Well, some, in some respects, it was a stunning term uh, from the standpoint of victories of a more liberal kind, perhaps the sort of decisions you might have expected years ago from the Warren Court, a case involving same-sex marriage we'll hear about, uh, the case uh, rebuffing one more challenge to the Affordable Care Act, a case involving housing discrimination, uh, a case involving campaign solicitations by judges. These were all victories which, if you put political labels on them, would be considered liberal victories. And I think some of the factors that were in play this term, uh, one, of course, everybody would understand the role of Justice Anthony Kennedy, who so often provides the fifth and critical vote. Um, he voted uh, with liberal justices in, uh, in ideologically divided five to four cases. He voted with the liberal side of the court, actually more than with the conservative side. One example being the Fair Housing Act case uh, in which the court upheld the theory that disparate impact would be sufficient to bring claims. I mean, that was an interesting case because all 11 of the federal court, circuit courts of appeal had uh, accepted uh, disparate impact and there was no uh, conflict of circuits, which is one of the classic ways of getting a case into the Supreme Court. So given that, uh, the defenders of fair housing were understandably concerned that the court might come in and strike down disparate impact and they didn't do that. Uh, Kennedy here being the fifth vote and it's interesting if you pair off justices, agreements among any two justices on the court. Justice Kennedy agreed, surprisingly to me at least, with Justice Sotomayor more than any other one justice. A second factor I think in this term's uh, configuration would be the discipline and cohesion of the what we might refer to as the liberal block on the court, that they agreed with each other, the four justices who are the most liberal, 90% uh, of the time. Um, and they filed many fewer separate opinions than the conservatives on the court did. A good example, we'll hear about the same-sex marriage case where all four of the conservatives' dissenters wrote separate uh, dissents, whereas the liberals were willing to, to um, sign on to Kennedy's opinion. You had some similar sort of cohesion, I think, in the Fair Housing Act case and the Affordable 
Care Act case. Um, Justice Ginsburg, you know, who uh, is 82 now, and there were liberals who wanted her to step down so President Obama could put somebody in her place, and she says, not a chance, I'm going full steam. And by golly, she has. She's really been a, a force on the court. She made a comment in an interview last year that uh, we, and she's referring to the more liberal justices, have made a concerted effort to speak with one voice in important cases, and I think she's helped bring that about. Um, this, there's more splintering that's been going on on the conservative side where conservatives this term wrote 40 dissents where the more liberal justices wrote 13, so it's a big difference. Um, a few cases that there were unusual moves by justices, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, for example, we'll hear about the uh, judicial campaign finance case. He's, all, he's been a staunch defender of First Amendment principles in campaign finance cases generally, but in the Florida Bar case, he came down on the side with the more liberal justices upholding the Florida Bar's uh, prohibition on uh, judges soliciting, personally soliciting campaign contributions. Uh, Justice Thomas provided a, a quite an interesting fifth vote in the Texas license plate case, which uh, Fred Schauer will be talking about, uh, the license, the holding that Texas could, in fact, uh, refuse to issue vanity plates for with Confederate flags. So you have some interesting um, sort of moves by individual justices. There's one way of thinking about some of these cases. I, it, I advance it as a hypothesis, um, and that is it may be that conservative overreach, the expectation of both litigants and of justices that the court would, in fact, push further and faster to the right than it finally did, may explain some of these cases. I have a sense that maybe four justices granted certiorari in some cases where they thought they would have a fifth vote, and it turned out they did not. Uh, for example, the effort to undermine the Affordable Care Act failed. Uh, efforts to limit the uh, Fair Housing Act failed. Um, and the challenges to voter initiatives in states like California and Arizona, the creation of independent commissions to draw election lines, those challenges were rebuffed. So now these liberal victories, if you call them that, for the most part simply maintain the status quo. I mean, they were not, they did not push the court further to the left, but they kept it from moving to the right. One obvious exception being this, the same-sex marriage case, which we'll hear about shortly. Uh, so Kennedy played a key role in this, but sometimes so did Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, and an example would be the Affordable Care Act case in which the proponents of that act feared that uh, Scalia's campaign to move the court to what he calls plain meaning textualism might lead the court to take those famous six words in the statute and use it to strike down the um, an important part of the act. But uh, I think in, in that case, King versus Burrell, that Chief Justice Roberts shows that he's not um, an adherent to Scalia's theory. He seems to me he's not buying into that. He seems to me to hold to a more traditional view that essentially the court's to be a faithful agent of what the legislature really sets out what it intends to do, what, it, what its purpose is. Uh, indeed, in this particular case, he was willing to find ambiguity in the relevant part of the statute by looking beyond those words to the rest of the statute. Um, and he basically <clears throat> is saying that um, a fair reading of legislation requires a fair understanding of what the legislative plan was. <clears throat> I find if you compare the Warren and Burger Court days 
to the days of the Rehnquist and Roberts court, it's interesting to think about the parties that bring cases because there was when the public interest law movement really was in its uh, heyday back in the Warren and Burger courts, it was typically liberal organizations, the NAACP, the ACLU, uh, women's rights groups and the others that were bringing some of the major cases. And many of you will know about Lewis Powell's famous letter to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in which he said, wake up guys, liberals are achieving all these victories in courts and what are conservative interests like business interests doing? Well, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has had a strikingly high rate of success in recent years in the Supreme Court. And you've, what you find now is that, this is my, my sense of it, that liberal groups are holding back a bit for fear if they take cases to the Supreme Court, uh, something bad will happen. The court will actually uh, undermine what they're after. And it's by and large more conservative uh, groups that are bringing these, uh, these cases. Citizens United, a perfect example of that. So watch the court next term because there's some interesting cases coming up that have been bought, brought by conservative activists. Uh, examples would include the challenge to the University of Texas's affirmative action program and um, a challenge to a Texas voting law on the, which raises the question whether um, apportionment will be of the entire population or just the voting, just, just uh, U.S. citizens. And both of those lawsuits were brought by a conservative activist, activist Edward Bloom, um, there's yet another case, a union fees case that comes out of uh, California in which a non-union member school teacher doesn't want to pay fees to the, uh, what the California Teachers Association. And that also has been brought by a group called the Center for Individual Rights. Uh, we may see an abortion case next term. The, there are Texas, Texas and Minnesota, Mississippi cases, in each case, the states are imposing rather strict rules requiring abortion clinics to have physicians who have privileges to practice at the local hospital. And in the Texas case, the uh, operators of those clinics say that well, this rule, if it's upheld, will close down about half of the clinics. And in the Mississippi case, they say that it will close down the, the only uh, clinic that's actually in the state. Now, looking further down the road, I think this present term and the next term really uh, set up some interesting questions. Um, for example, uh, conservatives are raising very serious questions about to what extent the court should defer to administrative agencies, uh, case this term involving uh, the EPA, Michigan versus EPA. Uh, you, you know perhaps about that case where the court struck down uh, the EPA's rather costly regulation program on the grounds that they have to take cost into account from the beginning. Uh, Justice Thomas concurred in that case going beyond the actual holding, and he said the case raises serious constitutional questions about the courts deferring to agencies under the Chevron rule. He, he would like to open up a much larger question. In another case, there were three justices, Thomas, Scalia, and Alito, who indicated a willingness to um, revisit the deference that's owed to agencies when they're interpreting their own regulations. That's another interesting issue. So, and I think all this falls in line with Chief Justice Roberts, what I see to Chief Justice Roberts' uh, long-term agenda to basically cut back on agent deference to agencies. And if that happens, of course, that will um, benefit opponents of big government uh, generally. 
the questions for the future lie not only on the conservative side, but the liberals this term raised a couple of very interesting questions, which in effect were invitations to litigate these particular questions. Uh, one has to do with uh, the death penalty. There was a case involving uh, a controversial drug that was uh, upheld by the court five to four, and in a dissent to that case, uh, Justice Breyer said he would um, address the constitutionality of the death penalty as such, a position that Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan took years ago, uh, issue on which uh, justices have opined from time to time, but there's never, as you know, been a majority on the court to abolish the death penalty. But in this particular case, this term, uh, Ginsburg, who joined Breyer's opinion, each of them uh, issued their dissents from the bench, and I think they feel strongly about the death penalty. Another interesting example is solitary confinement. There was a case this term dealing with um, the prosecutions, uh, reviewing the prosecution's peremptory challenges in a case. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote separately in this case to raise a different question altogether, and that is to say the constitutionality of solitary confinement. And it's one of those rather poetic Kennedy opinions where he seems to reach into his soul and really, in this case, he, uh, he talks about the human toll wrought by extended terms of isolation and the way solitary confinement exacts what he calls a terrible price. And he tosses in a dose of Dostoevsky, uh, which is not what you usually find quoted in Supreme Court opinions, but he quotes Dostoevsky saying the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. So he would like to see that question brought up before the court. Finally, um, to show you that it wasn't all terribly serious at the court this term, th this is a term that reminds us justices are becoming celebrities. They're becoming, I mean, Ginsburg is a great example. Uh, she, there are now notorious RBG t-shirts uh, there's a biography coming out, and there's a, there are plans, I understand, for a movie titled, uh, if you're prepared for this, on the basis of, basis of sex, uh, starting, starting uh, I think, Natalie Port Portman as um, young Ginsburg. And Ginsburg last year was at the American Constitutional Society, and when somebody asked her about this, she said, look, me at age 82, an icon? You've got to be kidding. But I think she actually loves it. Um, there's an opera was debuted this year, Scalia Ginsburg, a play called The Originalist about uh, Justice Scalia, where uh, an actor, Edward Garrow, I thought captures Scalia's uh, mannerisms and bluster with a uncanny accuracy. And of course, if nothing else is entertaining, you can always read Scalia opinions. I mean, he always has a word, something you never thought you would see in a Supreme Court opinion, uh, pure applesauce interpretive jiggery pokery, scotus care, and one of my favorites, the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. And finally, in the Obergefell case we're going to hear about in just a moment, this is the case in which he said, uh, you know, they said the majority opinion is couched in a style that is as pretentious as its content is egotistical. And this, you, you'll know this is the case where he said rather than join that opinion, he would hide his head in a bag. Well, so they, they are good for entertainment as well as uh, jurisprudence. So that's, <laughs> that's a few notes about thoughts about this term, and I turn now to uh, my colleagues' observations. <laughs>